best humans in the world are in this space. And by best, I don't necessarily mean the smartest, the wealthiest. I mean best by, you know, holistic, right? They're really good people trying to do good things in disinterested, selfless manners that I don't, I never saw in traditional finance. And I'm only seeing in really, you know, conservation efforts and, and digital assets. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of My Life in Four Trades. Joining me today is Chris Sullivan, portfolio manager and co-founder of Hyperion Decimus. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Chris. Welcome to My Life in Four Trades. Hi, Maggie. Thanks. Appreciate you having me. So before we jump into your trades, uh, it's our tradition to just find out a little bit about your background. So where did you grow up and what were the early years like for you? So was born a Yankee in New Haven, Connecticut, um, but essentially grew up in in Orlando, Florida, in the Maitland Winter Park area. Um, had, you know, an epic 80s, 90s childhood, as, as all of us remember. You know, I think there was little to no rules in parenting back then. So, you know, <laughs> riding bikes, uh, miles and miles, fishing, skateboarding without a helmet, you know, was I, I now realize how fortunate we all were to have that period. Uh, especially relative to the last, you know, two, three years, but, you know, was fishing, surfing, skateboarding, football, baseball, basketball, you know, swimming, you know, had a full gamma of gamut of uh, athletics and different diverse experiences. It was, it was awesome. Yeah. A lot of fun and freedom. Free state of Florida, baby. <laughs> so were you always uh, a sort of numbers guy, a math guy? How was the school experience for you? I would have never considered myself a, a math guy, but because of the musician background that I, I've had since I was a kid, and then honestly, being a longtime surfer, it kind of forces you into meteorology, which then forces you into types of, of science like bathymetry, which is the bottom contours and how they affect the physics of the incoming wave and velocity and all that kind of stuff, um, which then, you know, those two combinations led to a really acute awareness of autoharmonics in, in math and then cycles, as well as kind of the Fibonacci's, right? Um, all of that I had to, you know, force feed myself because I started out in college with music major background, but essentially couldn't cut it, you know, writing symphonies and four string quartets. It was just a humble guitar player, essentially. Um, so switched yeah. over to history. And luckily, I was convinced to focus on formation of American government, which the professors um, who were world renowned, William Bike, I, I love him to death, had us read, who I consider the greatest economist who's alive today, Thomas Sowell, shout out to Mr. Sowell. He, he is an underappreciated author and, and arguably one of the best embodiments of the Austrian economics folks, uh, you know, Mises and, um, and those guys are, are kind of my idols, but he reading his stuff. And then initially that Milton Friedman, then you read what the forefathers read, which was really John Locke and Adam Smith and Kant Hobbes, et cetera. I, I had just really, I would call a worldly education on economics, history, government, et cetera, all wrapped into one. And mm. I just happened to be trading um, as a young man, primarily because of the risk taking, you know, it's competitive, like, like sports. Um, I never intended to be, you know, in finance, but a lot of things in life happen by karma and fate. So that's kind of where we're at now. That's so wild because I, first of all, um, 
You know, I love that rounded background. And I, and I've said this before, because I'm always surprised. I mean, I saw your, you know, your, where you work and, and just a little bit about your background. This is the first time we're meeting, obviously. Um, and I was like, oh, quant, you know, and I, I just think we tend to think we have this idea that you're just going to be sort of a human computer and super, super, super numbered. And this has happened before with people who are also, you know, very into technicals and, um, that we've, we've had quite a few philosophy majors, philosophers, definitely historians, English. Um, and that always, I always find that so interesting. Do you think that rounded background has has helped you along the way? Absolutely, because I, I think having read arguably, you know, who everybody should be reading, whether, it, you know, your, your Keynesian, Lockean, Hobbes, Kant, Descartes, like all of those great philosophers, and really beginning with Cicero, the Day Republicans, a wonderful, wonderful read. Um, I think it puts a good backdrop on how to be at least not your own worst enemy as an investor, right? And at most, a broad scope of of awareness, right? And and I believe that if you're aware of more things than not, you're going to be a better holistic human. You're going to have the ability to raise your consciousness level, which helps with dealing with the kind of environment where it we're in currently in the markets and then obviously over the, the two and a half years of lockdown COVID craziness. So I do think it it was a great backdrop because the fun part about math is it's actually really easy. Um, it, you know, and I'm probably the weakest link on my team as far as quant because I was more force fed. I come from more of a trading background and then just was enamored with, okay, we can harness technology to do a lot faster computational work with machine learning, have the self evolving aspect of it, the automatic input of new factor data. And and really, you can't harness that. You, you, you need like 150 humans, right, to accomplish that in, in a one-minute bar. Uh, so I, I kind of went down the path of taking all of your traditional financial exams and then really doing the, the charter market technician work. They Back then, they, they actually had you code a trading system as part of your graduation. And, and then from there, it was just kind of, I didn't have those biases that people have when they have that single track. So mine was a little more creative and, and innovative, and that's been really helpful in crypto. And when you said you were investing just because it was a sort of risk sport that you liked, but this was back before, I mean, how old were you doing this? Because it's it's so accessible now, it's gamified, but back then it wasn't. So not everybody said, oh, I'm going to go you know, jump on and invest in stocks. Yeah, you kind of had to... Um present yourself uh, as an investor, maybe older than you were, but it was an E-Trade account initially. Um, and then when I was in college, I, I was able to get into the first rounds of Facebook and Twitter. And um, wow. you had had a little bit of capital at that time through just consistent winnings. Uh, you know, it was pretty easy to trade and make money 96 to 2000. So uh, yeah, well, a good timing, timing matters, right? But it was more of my grandfather, when I was young, taught me old school point and figure charting and used to pick me up in middle school, take me to the Morgan, Morgan Stanley office that was in the Winter Park Mall, and we'd sit on a bench and watch the ticker tape. Wow. So you had some family interest. Yeah, self-made, you know, carpenter, World War II veteran, no college education. And it's like, this is, this is one of the ways you build wealth. Um, so I kind of, it was really harmonious to then my first job in finance was at Morgan Stanley. Yeah, that's, a, oh, wow, that's full circle. So 
let's jump in and, and talk about your first trade, and it's one of your best, and that's making the switch to crypto from traditional finance. And we pegged that around 2017, but you started dabbling in crypto before that, um, you know, a couple of years before that. How did it even get on your radar? How did you even sort of put your foot in the world? Yeah, really, it was the white paper, number one. And then some poker professional poker players I trust and knew were using it almost instantaneously. And they're smart. And then a, a friend of ours was creating, you know, the first Bitcoin ATM. And I had already done a, a little bit, but it was very complex to even get access to it back then. And then really I wouldn't call a full allocation or even modest until about 2015. Um because it just was such a a big hurdle to overcome. Oh wait, Mount Gox and then yeah, you know Bitstamp was a good one, and then Bitthumb. There was all these different players that only a few are left now. That it was just really complex to get fiat into the the accounts to then convert to to crypto, and then you naturally kind of didn't trust it as much as we certainly trust it now because of the opacity and because it's it's just in the box, so to speak, right? And there were some raids early on too. There was you know there were some incidents that were high profile, and so uh, as professional investor, it. It really was understanding what it meant to humanity. That was just a click and like, okay, we want to be first to, to the party here. We know that we can run money in, in a long bias, but quant fashion that gives investors that, that up and to the right type of profile. If they take the time to have a 10, 20 year investment horizon. And, and I knew that the adoption was going to take longer than people thought because speculation only led led to a couple rounds of part, new participants coming in but what it really has created is the the defi ecosystem when we started the fund that didn't even exist right the nft side the all of these different different ecosystems and tokenomics so to speak did not exist when it was bitcoin ripple litecoin bitcash right and then 2014 ethereum so it it's just was enamoring the other thing as a quant that's really enamoring to my team and i is these new data sets, right? The on-chain data. It's, it's absolutely fascinating because data is just basically tracking the progression of mankind, right? So noting that you're seeing all these different data points, uh, you know, hash rate being a good one for proof of work. It's fascinating. So it was one part wanderlust, one part desire. Then the other part that was really a good kicker is that number one, the best humans in the world are in the space. And by best, I don't necessarily mean that smartest and wealthiest i mean best by you know holistic right they're really good people trying to do good things in disinterested selfless manners that i don't i never saw in traditional finance and i'm only seeing in really you know conservation efforts and and digital assets that's amazing that's that's like the first time i've heard that sort of reference but i've really the first time i've heard that sort of as a a sort of human capital way of putting it, you know, that the best, that the best people are working in that. Why do you think that is? I think because the ethos of it is decentralized. It's anti-oligarchy. It's anti-totalitarianism. And it's more freedom of choice and, and self-sovereignty, right? And that I think is generationally more um, received on the younger than baby boomers because you know, they, most of the baby boomers are still working. That that glass ceiling's been there. You know, Gen Z, Gen X, and and I'm an older millennial, like the whole time. So what what can naturally create that wanderlust and that passion? Uh, it's the disruption and then the community aspect of it. 
which I didn't anticipate when we were switching from the traditional space into crypto. Like we talked to other funds. We never would share information on, on, on the street. Like th- this is so much fun that it helps with not having any fear with all the vol because you know, it's, it's, it's going to be fine. That is a completely different environment than the, you know, the traditional cutthroat, you know, crush your competitor vibe of Wall Street. Right. Which is really, you know, I'll probably get crap for saying this, but it's really a veil of insecurity is why that exists in, in traditional. Did you experience that the short time you were there? Did you see that in action? Yeah, of course. You know, and when you don't have talent, you know, discipline and you're not a strong human being, you you err on the side of being trite, callous and selfish and insecure. And that's the attitude of those kind of people rather than add value holistically to everyone's experience in the ecosystem, which is not hard to do. It's have empathy, have humility, be kind and try and learn from every mistake you make along the way to get better. Like that seems so obvious. Luckily, myself, my team, we we try our best to adhere to that. It's not, you know, we're not perfect and it's not easy, but this space, you know, has v- relatively very few bad actors to the good actors. It's funny because you, what you just described, that environment was always seen as you choose that as opposed to profit. That they were distinct choices, but you don't see it that way. No, and it's the same way, like people get real confused by me being like, you know, surfer musician hippie, but also an uber anarcho-capitalist, right? And I explained to them, we cannot be pure free market capitalists if our environment is not perfectly in tune and the ecosystems are not perfectly healthy, right? It, there's never an either or, it's always multifactored. Um, I don't know why people don't inherently think like that, because to me it's obvious, but you are right. Usually it's an either or. And th- honestly, this is not good enough for myself and my team. We're not going to choose one or the other. It's going to be both. I love that. I think that I think that a lot of people agree with you. They They just... They feel they they don't like what they see, but they they haven't kind of articulated what you just did. You know, they sense that that doesn't seem right, and it's certainly not acceptable given all the challenges we have right now, because um, we kind of see that failing. You know, that that mode of operating is killing us all, sort of, isn't it? It's very alienating. It, it's divisive instead of you know inviting, and this is no different than any other period before. We just now have the tools and apparatus to transition in a way that's potentially nonviolent, right? Bitcoin is probably the most successful, first off, best software mankind's ever created. And then the first, perhaps nonviolent revolution to to occur in humanity's history, um, where you're, you get to opt out instead of, you know, use guns and ammo. Yeah. And that's a big, that's a big concept. I think people, to me, that's that you explained very clearly uh, that it's not it's not just a currency, right? I think that people who don't understand it see it on the outside and just think it's a, a currency alternative. But you just described something very different. Yeah, c- currency just means anything that's exchanged for value, right? So we're not as orthodox, right? Or rigid with with definitions. We are with the definition of recession as an aside. Um, <laughs> I just got to throw that out we'll there. Get to that. Um, we'll get to that. <laughs> so, but you know, just trying to be more malleable and more aware and, and sort of a gentler application so you can absorb information, be able to pivot quickly, not not suffer anchoring or all these preconceived biases helps really evolve quicker, right? And 
I think with the historical application of, of, of my partners and I, cause we have some that are a little older who've been through multi cycles and, you know, helped create DHFT and StatArb and all the, the quant movement in general. You've seen so many different iterations that the tried and true always works, right? Process, discipline and stamina is pretty much good enough as long as you have the talent. Yeah, and I, I was going to ask, you list that as one of your, you know, leaving traditional finance and going full on into crypto as one of your best trades. I mean, it's interesting that you still consider it that given all the declines and the pain we've seen in the market over the last year. You, you see pain, I see opportunity. Ah, I had a feeling. Why so? The most, I, I, I would love to put myself in this category, but the most successful investors of all time, uh, Icon being a very good one at this, are contrarian bears, right? Carl's amazing at picking apart deep value and going against the grain, right? It, but it's also very simple. To me, I've seen this go from, in Ethereum's case, like six cents to 4,000, right? Oh, it's 1,200? Oh, cool. <laughs> Buy more. You know, it's not that difficult. And then the other thing is I've seen people blow themselves up many, many times emotionally, never financially. So let, even take, you know, a stalwart like, like Apple. If you liked it at 90 and you don't like it at 120, like, I just don't understand why you would blow out, potentially pay, have tax consequences, and then know you want to get back into that trade. Now you have to arbitrage whatever your tax rate is. It just makes it so much more complex. And, and that's why, like, I like to think of things not just in asset class diversification, but strategy diversification, right? You have a, a long-term accumulation strategy. You have, okay, a trading and hedging strategy. You've got, the overarching uh, asset class diversification, and you apply those sub subsets to each category, and it really just gets you out of your own way. So your second trade is also one of your best, and that's going long Cardona uh, around 2018. Cardona, how how so set the scene for us? What's happening in your life at this time, and how does this come on your radar? Researching L ones. Right. So we believed that Bitcoin was essentially like gold 10.0, right? Um, very, but cleaner for the environment, very decentralized, costless, frictionless, et cetera, trustless, right? Um, you don't have to mine the whole mountainside to get it, right? And it's actually pushing innovation on all, you know, renewable energies. And then I, I love the, the methane from the, the waste management places and then the natural gas flares. It's it's creating this great environment of innovation and, and energy, especially capturing otherwise wasted energy resources. That's a big one for me because that's true recycling, in my opinion. Um, but with L1s, it was really like, what's going to really upend the hierarchy of traditional finance, right? What's going to be most disruptive? And those are essentially these platforms where things can be built on decentralized and with market participants coming together to build and use in a, in a free, no intermediary way. So um, really Ethereum and, and Cardano were only the known to us ones in that, in that camp. And it's like two cents. This is eventually going to have network revenue. And we, we went long that. And as part of, you know, our, our net long book, it just, we held it that that whole time and and, and started fading around two hundred seven, um, and now probably you know I'll disclose we're building back in right now, but um, <laughs> you know it, it was on a percent basis just a gigantic trade. And what what did you think after that win? 
Like, did it did it in any way change your perception or you, your way of thinking about things? No, I was worried that man, it's got to go down to like one thirteen to arbitrage the taxes. So that's how I was thinking. Um, but it, you know, you don't look to a gift horse in the mouth. And part of like my personal and then part of the fund strategy is to bank gains into more Bitcoin. So you always go back to Bitcoin. It, it's so scarce, and I'm I'm totally okay if I'm wrong. It, it, it's so scarce and such an important invention, asset, and vehicle that I'd never feel like I have enough. It's interesting because I think one of the things that's confusing for people outside this space is that it seems at times uh, very, I don't want to use the word tribal, but you know, the people who believe, believe in Bitcoin believe in Bitcoin. The people who are in ETH think that Bitcoin's going to, you know, that there there can only be a few that win. You know, it's kind of back to that race. Do you, does that, is that true for people who are inside? Is that just the perception we have on the outside? I'm not sure what the perception is on the outside because um, we've been graciously protected by the insanity of this asset class the last two years. So it's kind of like our own little bubble because it commands so much <laughs> yeah. attention. We don't really know what's going on in the outside world. Um so I, we're, we're kind of agnostic in that regard. You are right. There's a re- religiosity and tribalness to it, which is good because that, that, that fight and that competitiveness is great. It, it's, it's not really allowed in, in the traditional space. You just have mega caps colluding to get profits, right? That, and no, no offense, folks, but that's what's going on. Um, there's no real competition. It's all oligarchy and all monopoly. And if, if you question that, you're a fool. It's pure, it's pure monopoly. So I, May the best protocol and most decentralized, holistically valuable asset win. Like I, I'm agnostic to it, right? I want to invest in the ones that have the highest probability, but it's not one ring to rule them all. You know, it's not what it is, right? And Bitcoin is not Ethereum. Totally different, completely different. Mm-hmm. And and Ethereum is not Monero, and Monero is not um, Solana. They're all different, or or Helium, for example, or Filecoin, or they're all. They're all different, and it's up to the market to decide. Um, I'd like to see them disrupt. Currently, I kind of appraise it in four or five different sectors, and it's like, can you disrupt cloud? Can you disrupt online marketing and and sales? Can you disrupt services, financial services? And can you be a venue for trading like a Uniswap? So I'm more into having those diverse sleeves in a handful of names that I think are valuable, and we run our own qualitative and quantitative process to deem what that is. You have to be investor to benefit from it. I'm not going to say it on on here. Um, but yeah, I, I, we don't we don't look at it that way. You, you can't be so one-sided, at least if you want to be a successful investor. But if that's what people want to do that keeps their head straight, good on them because the best strategy is the one that keeps peace of mind. Forget if it makes money. If it keeps peace of mind, you're good. Do you use the frameworks and the strategy skills that you learned through investing in traditional finance, or have you had to think about this completely differently? Both. Um, we'd certainly take and extrapolate alpha concepts, especially on the quant end, from the traditional space. The probably highest corollary is commodities, uh, especially early on. Now, now with the vehicles, it's created a, a, an equity-like look to to the curves and fractals in addition to, to a higher correlation this year than we've seen in previous years. So I, I think utilizing that skill set has created the format where we can test and discover. But as quants, we do have a major problem because there's just not enough data. 
right? Like if you look at Solana or any of the major well ones now, you've got a couple year old data sets, right? Well, that's not good enough to run sophisticated quant on. I mean, I'd be lying if I told you otherwise. So it's, it's definitely a, an explore, exploration of best efforts and a adherence to what's simplistic and tried and true, not over, you know, making over complicating it with 15 factor inputs and blah, blah, blah. So your third trade is one of your worst, and that's getting involved in stable coins in 2020. So set the scene for us again. So how did this come about? And you know what was your mindset going into this? So, and I don't mean that in performance, right? I consider this the worst trade because it's, it's for lack of a better way of describing it, it perpetuates fiat, right? I personally love the algo stable coins. Obviously not all are created equal, but the concept is fantastic. Um, so when I say worst trade, it's like, uh, you know, we've made this big career shift from kind of a cushy, easier 930 to 4, 930, 530 kind of thing to 24-7, ready, go. Um, and I just gradually, even before any of the debacles, like to just despise the stable coins because they perpetuate banks having the ability to hold cash reserves. And it's antithetical to the ecosystem of crypto in any OG um Mr. Jesse Powell being one of my favorites. Um, sad that he's left Kraken uh, as CEO, but we, we, we consider Bitcoin as the stable coin, Maggie. And then if you, if you looked at what was most radical about kind of 16, 17, 18, you had BitMEX, uh, as a, a big price leading indicator because you, you posted your Bitcoin as your collateral to your futures trade, your perpetual swaps trading. And that tethered it to something real when you're using USDT or USDC, it's, it's more like equities trading. Honestly, it's a factor that's led to a higher correlation. So I, I call it like worst trade because we've been forced to participating in, in certainly some of the rails that they provide into DeFi, for example. And we're not a big fan of that. Can you foresee a time when you will be able to not participate or is it getting baked in in the way, especially when you're talking about rails, that's going to be hard to shake? Unfortunately, that's not up to me. <laughs> um, I, I think our our team and our client base is certainly more keen on defaulting into larger positions in Ethereum and, and Bitcoin and will we'll, accept a little more volatility with diminished use of, of stable coins. Um, so I, we're never an all or none. Everything's multi-factor and, and everything's relative. So what's the best, most holistic blend? Um, but because it, it fights with the practitioner of an asset manager with the ethos of and, and philosophy of what we like and don't like, it, it, it's combative and it takes a lot of discipline to adhere to what's right for, for the investment thesis not what's, you know, philosophically or ethically, you know, more, more of an approved policy. Um, yeah. So it'll, it'll work itself out naturally as things do over time. Your fourth trade is a really interesting one. And that's another one of your worst. And that is, I assume, a position that you did have being long ICP in May, 2021. So ICP Internet computer protocol. It's a what newer cryptocurrency. Tell tell us about this. You know, it, it, new-ish is probably the correct one, but it had been hyped for so long. I, I fell victim to it. Um, you know, 
was in contact with the Definity Foundation and organization, did all the white paper reading and really studied up on, on the premise and, and the thesis and the use case and was totally convinced. And then, you know, forgive me for saying folks, but it came out, all of the VCs and insiders just dumped into the market. And it, I, right around 320, 340 was some major listings. And it, you know, it, it didn't even have any subdivisions on that way down. And so like that peak to trough was my largest loss of my lifetime. And how quickly did you realize this? I think it was pretty quick, right? And and did you understand the full extent of what was going on and what was your reaction? No, it took it took time because okay, you see the sign kind of for selling and there's no bid liquidity. So all right, you know, I'll stomach it. And then you're down like 70, 80. And I'm like, oh, well, that's a typical correction in crypto. And then it doesn't do anything. And and they're you know, to give them credit, they did update the white paper, I believe, May 22nd of this year, maybe May 24th. Um and our rolling out L1 DAP capability. But we've gone a long period of time of unknown, and most investors like to harvest tax losses, myself included. And that, like on a percentage basis, was the biggest biggest one of my lifetime. How did you feel about the fact that, I mean, you're somebody who who does the did diligence, reads the white papers, understands the problem it's trying to solve. I mean, you, you have, even though it's a new relatively new, we're talking years, but you have experience in this. How did you end up on the losing end of this incident? I mean, how do you feel about the fact that even with your knowledge and experience, you also fell victim to this? It's just the way it goes. And I'll represent that humbly and honestly, because one of the things that we've seen a lot of people do is like, they let one loser or maybe a couple losers bring their whole vibration and and mindset down, right? They bring their consciousness down, make it darker, more negative. And rather than go in going, you know what, all we're going to do is try our best, try to get better every opportunity we can. And we know we're going to lose, right? Mm-hmm. Even this downtrend, you know, we, we didn't consider it being this deep, to be very frank, but we, we knew there was a pretty healthy correction coming. Um, I haven't, I haven't sold any Bitcoin. I'm just buying more, right? So I've sucked up all that per- on, on my personal side. The fund obviously does different stuff. Um, Totally piece of that. I didn't lose. I have more sats now. Stacking sats is the most obvious strategy in crypto, in my opinion. So I think it was painful because of the psychology of going, man, I fell victim to hype. There was no way of knowing what we know now in terms of appraising everything ahead of time. And if I had the chance to do it again, whenever insiders dump, you should just get out. Would that have made only a 30% difference, which wouldn't have given me the tax benefit as much, you know, but it, it definitely was humbling. And, and that's what losses are supposed to do. They're supposed to humble you and puts everything in check. No one's that smart or that cute or that funny. And you just know you're going to take looks along the way. What about the insiders dumping, though? It seems to go against the ethos that you described before, where it's a really good sort of ethical community people trying to improve everyone's life. Sounds a bit more like traditional when you're insider selling. You bring up a really good point because one of the reasons I I can't and won't be a large equity investor ever again is because the capital formation process is broken. My, My entire adult career has been private equity VCs dumping billion, multi billion valuations with negative earnings. That not only boxes out good ideas where the equity market's supposed to be for small groups of folks to raise 250 million for a great idea that investors want to get behind. 
not to have a debt burden gigantor large cap company come out and be just be dumped on the public because it's a liquidity event for insiders. Um, I definitely immediately anchored to that experience and it's happened in other tokens too, not just this one. Um, and yeah, you're, you, you are less worthy as a holistic participant in the ecosystem now because of being guilty of the same thing. I get that early investors want liquidity events. I get that you got to monetize gains for cash flow purposes, but at the same time, like <laughs> you can do it in a two or three year distributed methodical fashion. That's not harmful to investors, not harmful to your process. And not everybody has the discipline or forethought to do that. That's the thing, isn't it? Now that this is getting, you know, this asset class is getting bigger, there's more money at stake. Do you worry that the exactly the thing that attracted you to this will get polluted by the same thing, the same sort of greed? Um, it's greed. Yeah, I don't want to call <laughs> it corruption, but just erosion yeah, of, of principle. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, that's a yeah. human frailty, right? Like humans are very corruptible. And there's collusion and blah, 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 and greed. In a free market system like this, though, you don't get bailouts. You get destroyed. So we still have it as a feature, not a bug. That's that stuff like Luna or, or C5, Celsius, you know, or, or who, all of them at all, right? You're going to get punished in this space. So it has that cleansing, healthy price destruction. That's the number one feature of, of a free market is price destruction. Right, whether you're Mr. Soul or you are Keynes, that's the biggest thing. That's that's a marker of a free market is is destruction, and I think that this space does it faster and more ferocious than any other space. Um, so I hope that that continues. That sounds like uh, it's a cautionary tale for investors, though, because if you're going to keep that, then you have to understand that you may be on the end of that price destruction. At some point, again, like the the central banks have, you know, lulled everybody to sleep for the last, I would argue, twenty two years, maybe longer, um, where there's been a put under the market forever. It's very clear they've taken that put away now. So, you in the equity and, and bond space, you've got I can't remember the exact percentage fifty one percent, seventy percent are zombie companies, right? That can't occur in crypto. So as an investor, you want your capital going either destroyed if you're wrong or going into healthy environments to create and innovate and disrupt. And you need that that destruction to, to weed out unworthy participants and projects. And crypto has been known to do that really well. Like, you know, I'll, I'll pick on Solana real quick. They've had all kinds of, you know, issues, hacks, wormholes, blah, blah, blah. But their their team is ready punching punching the clock, getting better each one. And I would argue the more disruption and issues a, a blockchain or project team or development team has, the better they're going to be. Like take take Bitcoin, for example. How many times, Maggie, have you heard, oh, Bitcoin's dead? Yeah. Wait, is it's dead on its price versus dollars? Because I would argue the dollar is dead. Fiat is dead. It's down 99% since the creation of central banks. It's already gone. Like thinking that it's not dead is foolish and certainly not mathematical. Um, we still have negative real rates for goodness sake. Um, so, you know, feature, not a bug is, is what I'd say about that. Do you 
believe that when there are people involved in those projects that go that that have that kind of outcome, do they get to recycle themselves or does that is there a certain transparency that you think will prevent the uh, the ability for, you know, we've seen in traditional finance, people blow things up and then they get right back in and they can do it again. You don't even know who they are. You don't even know who walked away with the riches. Sometimes you just know who was left holding the bag, usually the retail side of things. Is there a sort of transparency in in crypto and digital assets that you think can help prevent that because of blockchain and because of the, the sort of sense of the community? I, I hope so. Because the reason myself, my team got sort of eloped into this space, we're enamored by the space, is I want to trust code, not humans. Humans aren't trustworthy. Code is trustworthy, right? So one of my biggest things as an investor is if if a token project doesn't have a pathway to permissionless, I'm not doing it. I'm not putting money behind it, mm. period. So I think I would also argue that it's not, it's up to the market, Maggie. Like, I would love to believe that you're correct and that, that nefarious folks would be a stop from coming in, but also I'm, I'm, I'm a quick to forgive person. It's just people need to be humble enough and be worthy to be forgiven. And you can't just because someone made a mistake, if it was an honest mistake, you, and they're worthy of forgiveness, forgive them and, and they'll, they'll be that much better as a participant again. So I, I would never want to be an absolutist on that. Yeah. And it's a question. It wasn't a, it was a, it wasn't a position. It was just a question. And, you know, what's the difference between intention and inexperience is another thing that you've got to put against that, right? In this new space, when things go wrong, is it because the intention was to get out fast and first, or was the, was it inexperience that you didn't see the potential coming? And, you know, I think we've seen people trying to, you know, make right, but it's tough. And they're, they come under a lot of criticism because everybody knows who you are. <laughs> What has been the biggest learning for you in this journey through crypto? What's what's surprised you about yourself or made you sit back? Because you obviously come out at your philosophical, you're very sort of interdisciplinary person, which I think has had to have been a huge help. Uh, but what what's what's caused you to sort of t- sort of restock or take stock and think, hmm, okay, that's in, that's that's interesting. I'm going to have to challenge myself on this. I hmm, I think I assumed. While we thought the adoption curve would be longer than what was publicized, I assumed a lot more um, participation than is there now. Mm. And and then we we also uh, assumed that um, the sort of passive vehicle thing would not be applicable because it, it doesn't work very well for commodities with these ETNs. They're, they're negative convexity and they decay and erode capital. So there was a push for a lot of these ETPs or synthetics or whatever that are create that same negative convexity in, in, in the spot market um, that didn't invite investors in in a way that I would have preferred. And because of the destruction of these up and down 80 cycles, a lot of the you know funds and, and participants have been put out of business because investors typically will panic and then they withdraw. And then so you've got these giant capitulation movements that have, I think, really created a a higher mental barrier to entry for retail and institutional investors. And then um, the China ban May 2020 literally changed the shape of the curves of the market. So um, we definitely didn't see that coming. Ironically, it'd be cool if they flip that switch back on, which no one can see coming too. Uh, that's the, the contrarian speak. Is that possible? I Everything's possible. In your mind? Yeah, of course. Especially, you know, and I'm not that well read on this, but with the BRICS, adding 
Saudi Arabia and South Africa and the settlement layer and different currencies and perhaps even Bitcoin as a, as a test net. Um, why, why would they also maybe not, you know, allow investors to, to participate again? Like nothing, nothing's forever. China is such a control state though. Isn't that, isn't that completely something that would have absolutely no control over? Yes and no. Cause this, this market self-governance by its volatility, right? So con- yeah, it's not the same thing as CBDC, which everybody should be terrified of. Um, that's like a digital. Pre- I think every, I think everybody is. Yeah, I mean, that executive. Uh, that, that's a Chinese it. state. Chinese state digital coin, by the way. What would your advice be to people who are, who are have watched, who are new to the space? Maybe it, timing's everything, right? You have the perspective of having been in early, having booked amazing gains, and having seen the possibilities. Some people, uh, when they put their toe into this, got crushed. Uh, so their feeling is different toward it. What would your what would your advice be? Well, I mean, I've got crushed year to date too, right? Personally, yes, right. Because but you have some gains to at least you know sort of balance it out from yeah. the past. Um, and you know, I think the the advice is you got to pick what kind of investor you are, right? It's very difficult to trade your way to wealth. That's that's one part discipline, one part luck. Right to be very honest, and and I think while it's fun, the the stats show that most people that trade their own money, including professionals, lose money. Right, markets in some sense are designed to destroy capital. Right, so that's what they're here to do. Oftentimes, they take the path that does do that, which is funny from a predictive standpoint. Um, so I I would just say like decide what kind of investor you are before risking capital. Never use leverage. Never like the Buffett no liquor. No leverage, right? That's the easiest thing to, to abide by. Um, and that way you're never going to be a forced buyer or seller, right? That's, that's how you live to fight another day is don't be forced in or out of a position. Um, definitely learned that the hard way, you know, 10, 10, 11 years ago. Um, so that's, that's probably the first thing I'd, I'd give as advice. And then the second being decide on what kind of investor you are. Are, are you the accumulating assets? Are you trying to outperform a benchmark? Are you, just enamored with investing in one sector of the space. And the more you can iron out those details and parameters, you then start to develop a process around that. And I think out of that process becomes discipline and out of discipline, you start winning more than losing. That's fantastic advice. Chris, it was wonderful to get all this insight in a a peek inside, uh, I think, a part of the market that the insiders love, but a lot of us are looking at from the outside. So, so appreciate that. Thank you so much. You're welcome. My pleasure, Maggie. Thanks for having me. All right, that's a wrap on this week's edition of My Life in Four Trades. For more on the series, visit realvision.com forward slash my life in four trades. Make sure to use the numeral four. 